Mark chapter 5 as we continue in the narrative of what uh, Mark is giving us here is uh, really a significant uh, continuation of what has happened in chapter 4. If you remember in chapter 4, we have the story of the storm and the sleeping Jesus. And uh, the basic lesson there is uh, if Jesus is asleep, you are okay. (laughs) If you're in the storm and you're in the boat and you belong to Jesus and Jesus is in the boat and he's asleep, nothing bad is ultimately going to happen to you. It's just an incredibly great lesson in terms of God's sovereignty and our patience and waiting for him to actually handle our crises and circumstances. We are safe in Christ. Now we come to this passage, and it's another story about the sovereignty of Christ. And so let's begin by looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. Let's pray.
Father, help us by your grace to grasp the truths in this passage that are most significant, to teach us the great theme that Mark has given to us, that this is the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That in, in gaining, holding on to, embracing your word and truth, we might become more faithful followers of the one who died for us. That we might take seriously his commission to all believers to be salt and light to this earth, to go and to make Christ known. This we pray in his name. Amen. I want to begin by quickly rehearsing a story that we find in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 2, about King Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is regarded as the most wicked king of Judah. So let me tell you why. In 2 Chronicles 33.9, we have this description of this man. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. Now remember the seven nations that uh, God told Moses and then Joshua to, you, you have to eradicate these people because they are spiritually beyond redemption. They have declined so far in evil. They are the worst of the worst that uh, if, if these people are in the land, when you move into land, they will corrupt you and turn you away from the true and living God. They will be your spiritual disaster. This is an either-or. In order for you to remain holy with me, you must destroy these people. And if you don't destroy these people, they'll be a continual snare to you, and they will be your destruction. Now, the peoples were not totally annihilated. There were always remnants of those people in the land. And Manasseh, as king of Israel, hundreds of years after the time of Moses and Joshua, begins to do the same things which those wicked people had done in terms of their spiritual apostasy from God. We actually read in verses 5 to 7, Manasseh built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Which, by the way, the word Hinnom there later becomes the Greek word Gehenna, which becomes a word that describes hell in the New Testament. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and he met with mediums and necromancers, and he placed a carved image of the idol that he made in the house of God. This man was more wicked than all the other kings before him. His wickedness even exceeded the wickedness of the nations that God had told Moses and Joshua to destroy. But here is what we also read, verses 12 and 13. And when he, Manasseh, was in great distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, 
And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the God was the Lord and that the Lord was God. This wicked, wicked king was reconciled to God, forgiven and restored. He began to clean up the city of Jerusalem to remove all the idolatry there. He had begun this before he died. Now, this is one of the most remarkable stories in all of the Old Testament of God's sovereign good mercies to redeem people who are desperately, desperately wicked and deeply, deeply, hopelessly lost. There's a direct connection to this story in Mark's gospel. Because we, what we read here in Mark's gospel tells us this great truth with the coming of Jesus into the world revealed, that there is no one who is beyond the ability of Christ to save, so we must not despair of those who seem to us to be hopelessly lost. I, I want you to think about what this story is going to tell us. Mark's narrative focuses upon this great truth that Jesus specifically crosses the Sea of Galilee with this single-minded purpose in mind. It's to meet this man, this one who is hopelessly lost, and to grant him mercy. To grant mercy to someone who is hopelessly lost. To tell us, to remind us that ultimately there is no one beyond the power of Christ to save. And therefore in our own lives and our own relationships with, with family members and friends and people we have cared about who yet live and who seem hopelessly lost that we might continue to persevere in prayer and witness to them. Now, the story here is going to talk about, first of all, and present to us from Mark's perspective, the mission of Jesus to deliver, and then the means by which Jesus delivers, and then actually the mission that Jesus gives to those who are delivered. It's all about mission and deliverance. It's all about the means by which we are delivered. It's all about what God would commission us to do since we have been delivered. So the mission of Jesus to someone who's hopelessly lost, that's the first part of what the story is all about. We begin in verses 1 through 5, which sets the stage for the story. Here Mark describes for us one who really does appear in every, every way. This man is hopelessly lost. Uh, look at verse 3. He lived among the tombs. We already know that he's a demoniac. We already know that he's demon-possessed. And later we're going to realize that not just by one demon, but by many, many, many. So here we have this demon-possessed man. He lives among the tombs. He's rejected by all the living people, all the family, the friends. Uh, so he's more at home in the place of the dead than he ever is in the place of the living. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that he was superhumanly strong. In reading this, I thought about Samson, empowered by the spirit of the living God, and I think about this man, empowered by the darkest forces in all of God's creation. He is superhumanly strong. Often the local people had, 
had captured him. They had put him into chains and fetters. But all these attempts had been futile in the final analysis. He had broken all of these chains. He ran loose. And they had basically ceased to attempt to do this any further because he was beyond their ability to control. And so we read in verse 5 that he lives this life that reflects both a great kind of internal torment and external pain. He's constantly crying out. I don't think Hollywood has ever done justice to the maniacal cries that someone so deeply possessed would ever utter. Out of the depths of his soul, cries of despair and pain, as well as the fact that he's a self-mutilator. This is not just about the fact that he's unclothed and therefore living on the rocks, he's going to get scratched up and bruised. The passage tells us he intentionally cuts himself. This is an incredibly sad picture of the deepest kind of human despair and human wretchedness. And we know that this man's torment has its source in the fact that his life and who he is is controlled by an evil spirit. This is a picture of what demonic powers attempt to do with respect to human beings, in line with what Jesus said about Satan himself, that he comes to kill and he comes to destroy those who are made in God's image. But we also ought to recognize that this description of this man's condition is not just this man's condition, it points to everybody's condition. Because in this episode, we find something here that's in common with everyone who experiences the fallenness of the fallen human condition. I know in the first reading, we might think that this man's story and condition represents something that's radically extreme. A situation far beyond the norm of what almost every other fallen person has ever experienced. But we would be wrong to look at it that way. This is because every person, according to Scripture, is hopelessly lost. And every person actually has experienced something very similar to what this man has experienced in its extreme. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses there. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. Paul says it is common to all of us before we were found by God's grace, that our lives, our ways, our thinking, our desires were dominated and controlled by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all the sons of disobedience. We were spiritually dead and we were spiritually energized in all of our evil ways by satanic powers. So the difference here with this demoniac is simply a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. His life was clearly dominated by an immense amount of spiritual darkness, 
But Paul says that that same dark power also dominated us, making us spiritually dead, making us the unwitting followers of Satan. But I want you to also consider a further way that this man's life pictures for us the fallen human condition. Apparently, from what Mark says, that there was a time when the local townspeople had put a tremendous amount of effort in seeking to conquer and to control this man's life and behavior. But what they discovered was this. His life was beyond all man-made approaches to bring his life under control. And the reason is this. The fallen, sinful human nature cannot be tamed. It cannot be corrected. It cannot be fixed by human methods of behavioral management. In other words, the ordinary and even the extraordinary man-made approach to setting controls over this man's problems were utterly ineffective. And that is because they could not address what was at the root of this man's problem. That root was spiritual and moral. He was a fallen human being. He wasn't right with God. And likewise, the sinful and destructive behaviors of the human race are not solvable by human psychology, by human sociology, <laughs> by all of the machinations of, of political endeavors, uh, education. None of the things that we think we can do as human beings to somehow make human beings better is ever going to prove effective. Human beings are at war with each other and at war with themselves for one reason. It is because we are at war with God. Now the answer then, this passage is found in the mission of Jesus. Mark makes it clear that the mission of Jesus is to reach this man, this demoniac. If you look back to chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples that they, as they boat, that they are to leave and that they are to go to the other side of the lake. So Jesus is directing his disciples to this very spot. And even though all the forces of nature seek to stop it, all the forces of nature in terms of the wind and the waves seek to swamp the, the boat and to drown Jesus and his disciples, they cannot prevail against Christ when he is in his mission. And his mission is to this man, this particular man, this hopelessly lost man. But not just to this man alone. Because, as we read, the last part of the story is about how Jesus sends this man back to his own people with his own mission to tell them what great things the Lord has done for him. Now then, moving on to the next section, verses 6 through about verse 13. Mark tells us the means by which Jesus delivered this man. Well, actually, Mark doesn't really so much tell us as Mark shows us. And I just want you to understand that that is the way it is with biblical narrative. A good storyteller 
conveys his message, not by spelling it out for you, but by showing you through the structure of his narrative what is actually happening. Now, that's more sophisticated than an Aesop fable, which after the story goes, and the the moral of the story is this. You you don't get it because of the story. You're not smart enough to get it by listening to the story. So after the story, we have to tell you, hey, we who are dumbed down to this level, this is what the story means. Don't steal. (laughs) This is what the story means. Always tell the truth. No, no, no. The Bible is very sophisticated in the gospel narratives because again and again and again, it is telling us by showing us. And so it is here. So it is here. What do we see? What are we shown? We are shown the means by which Jesus brings about deliverance. The details in the story that are all significant. For instance, in verse 6, Mark tells us that the demon-possessed man ran to Jesus to meet him as soon as Jesus embarked from the boat. Uh, But it's important for us to ask, why? Why did this demon-possessed man run to Jesus as soon as Jesus... He sees him far off. He runs to meet Jesus as soon as the boat lands. Why? Now, if you consider what Mark says, you're going to find that this is really strange. This is really unusual behavior on the part of this man. Because first, look at the fact that Mark reveals panic in terms of this man. It's reflected in how this man comes. Verse 7, he runs to Jesus, he falls down before him, and he cries out in fear. Now, the fear that we see here is that of the demonic personalities who control this man, who speak to this man from within. They fully recognize who Jesus is. And they fear him. They speak out of the man that possessed. They recognize who Jesus is. They do not want this encounter with Jesus. Why? Why? They're going crazy with fear because they fear what Jesus can do to them. They fear what Jesus might do to them. They fear that Jesus will send them to the abyss. They fear that Jesus will torment them. I have to submit to you that it is beyond rational behavior to run toward the very thing that you fear. Do you not see that when this man saw Jesus from afar and recognized who he was because of the demonic abilities which he had, that they, in fact, wanted to run away, not toward Jesus. Nevertheless, they run to Jesus. What must also be missed, not missed, (laughs) is that this demon-possessed man, he wasn't the one motivating this approach to Jesus. He didn't come on his own. He's possessed by demons. He has no ability, first of all, humanly speaking, to know who Jesus is. When Jesus is afar off on the boat and moving towards shore, there's no earthly way he can know this is a redeemer, this is a savior, that this is anyone who can help him. It's beyond the possibility of him knowing that there's any help in this approaching boat, humanly speaking. So he has no reason to run toward him. In the second place, he's not really the one who's choosing what he does with his behavior. He's under the control of the demonic. They didn't want to come to Jesus. Therefore, he didn't want to come to Jesus, but he comes to Jesus. So, 
What's left then? What possible agency is actually left that explains why this man came to Jesus? Mark places the reader in the position to understand that it was Christ and his sovereign power. This man came to Jesus because Jesus was summoning him to come. No other answer. No other perspective does justice to what Mark is showing here. You see, the sovereign authority of Christ is all over this passage. When the demon-possessed man falls before Jesus, Mark tells us what he calls Jesus. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And in this reaction to Jesus, we have an example of the kind of submission that God, in all of his sovereignty, requires of every created being. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord there, what does it mean? That Jesus Christ is the sovereign one to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening. The demoniac could not name him Jesus without also bowing in submission before him. The sovereign authority of Christ compelled him to do so. And Christ, by that very same power by which he had calmed the winds and the sea, had summoned this man to come. And not all the powers of hell could stop this from happening. Now this indicates then the very means by which Jesus delivers the hopelessly lost. It is through his sovereign power to deliver and to save. Mark is showing through the story the same thing which Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 6, verse 44. Where no one can come to me, he says, and let the Father who sent me sovereignly draws him. Here's the sovereignty of God's invincible grace to draw a broken and sinful human being to his son. There's something more in this passage that ought to give us great hope. The power of God's grace is greatly highlighted in this story. It's a significant fact that Jesus compels the demon to identify himself. And the demoniac acknowledges that he's not just one evil spirit, but that he is many. He calls himself legion. Now, a legion of Roman soldiers contained more than 6,000 men. was speaking literally or figuratively, it's still the truth that the description here is of an excessively large number of evil spiritual entities that are residing in and controlling this man. Everything we know about demon possession from the scriptures is such that when a person is truly demon-possessed, he doesn't really control his life. 
Now imagine being possessed thousands of times over. In other words, you and I can imagine no stronger set of forces of evil controlling a human being than what controlled this man. There's no way this man could ever get free by his own effort or even by any other set of human endeavors. There was no way this man could ever come to Jesus on his own. This is because the demonic spirits totally owned him. To emphasize again, this man was hopelessly lost. Now, this kind of hopelessness of the human condition is something that is so often rejected by the world's philosophies. It it seems to rankle especially the elites of American television and movies, that human beings would ever be considered to be hopeless. I mean, again and again, I see main characters in dire situations saying something like this. It doesn't matter how bad things are, how hopeless things are, you always have a choice. I was watching some mindless TV show the other day. Describe it that way. Mindless. Sad, it attracts me, and I'm watching the whole series. (laughs) But the hero is trying to rescue a heroin addict. And the addict is desperately crying out for a hit. So the hero places a syringe and packets of heroin right in front of him and says, I need your help. You are the only one who can help me. But you can't help me if you remain an addict. I need you to be free. But you have a choice. You always have a choice. And the hero walks away. And of course, in the next scene, when the hero returns, the syringe is unused. The heroin packets are there floating in the toilet. And the heroin addict has chosen, chosen to free himself from his addictions. Now, that's what we find in the American culture again and again and again, that your will, your free choice, is always strong enough to defeat whatever evil is trying to control you from the inside, whether it's chemical addiction or the traumas from the past. Again and again, the world's message to human beings is, you are never hopelessly lost. Inside of you is something that is able to conquer everything, your free will is stronger than any evil that afflicts you, that even the most attractive evil staring you in the face can be stopped, can be halted. Simply choose the right thing to do. But the truth and the reality of life is otherwise. If you and I are looking at the thing that controls us, we stay captive. If we keep staring at what holds on to us, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, we don't have a choice. We have none at all. To say that we have a choice is to say that we can trust in ourselves. It's to say that we can believe in ourselves. It's to say we can conquer evil by our own choices and internal powers and reform our own lives. And that is a great satanic lie.
It's the most ancient heresy that we find in the church. If we go back to the 5th century, we find a man by the name of Pelagius basically saying, the grace of God is a great thing, but it's an auxiliary. You have within your own free will the ability to make your life perfect and to obey everything God that God requires of you, but it's really nice to have the example of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to give you a little extra boost if you need it. And we see this again and again, that even today in evangelicalism, so much of Christianity is, you can do it, and Christ will help you. I'm here to say, you can't do it. You can't do it at all. Jesus isn't your helper. Jesus is your savior. Jesus isn't there to give you a little boost to make you good. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't do it yourself. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing except sin. On your own, you're going to choose sin again and again and again and again. You are and will be always a moral failure and a spiritual failure and someone who's so crippled that you can't do it. You need Jesus. And don't think because you're a Christian, you now somehow have arrived at a place where that kind of stuff doesn't bother you anymore. It can't hold on to you anymore. It most certainly can. And it will. If you do not walk in faithfulness with Jesus. We live by what Jesus did for us. We continue to live what Jesus did for us. We have to. The gospel is for you every single day. And it's the invincible power of a sovereign Christ who has rescued you from the sin in your life and who must continue to rescue you every single day. We must trust in Jesus. There is no other way. We come to the last part of the story, and it's about the mission of the man who was delivered. When Jesus saves us, he has purpose in mind. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that the Savior who redeems you in his mission calls you then to be part of his mission. He saves you in order that you might have purpose that brings glory to God, and that's what we see here how Jesus saved this man in order to serve. Now, just let me say this. It's not that the service makes you in any sense more saved. It doesn't. It's a service of privilege. It's a service of grace. It's a service that gives you incredible sense that God is glorified in this. And God would choose me to be part of what he's doing and saving people in the world. And, and what he's doing... We have to see it that way because that's the way it is. You, you can't ever give back to God because of what he's given to you. You, can, you just don't have it. But what a wonderful thing to be called into service to him in order to do what Jesus came into this world to do, and that is to seek and to save those who are lost and be part of that. To be part of that. And we're all called to that, and we see that here. Look at the context. Jesus permits this legion of demons to enter the pigs who were feeding on the hillside. And the herdsmen who were keeping the pigs, they watch in dismay and fear. And so they go back to the city, they flee back to the city, they tell everyone what has happened. Now we're not given a lot of details here, but again, Mark is showing us 
that the herdsmen and the people connect all the dots correctly. I mean, how do you see demons leaving a man and going into pigs? I mean, mostly demons are invisible, right? <laughs> I would think so. But they connect all the dots, and they connect all the dots correctly. The herdsmen had seen the, the pigs acting like they were possessed, and they see the man acting like he's no longer possessed. They connect the dots. And they see Jesus as the central figure in all that's happened. And then we see the response in verse 17. They beg Jesus to leave. They are afraid of the one who has more power than a legion of demons. They fear the one who has made a crazed, demonic, sane, and whole. They fear the one who favors and values the life of one man over the value of 2,000 pigs. They fear the one who places spiritual salvation above the riches and wealth of this world. And this is characteristic of all people who are hopelessly lost. They can never value and desire things according to the truth of God. Their hearts will deceive them that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and all the things that cause our pride to boast most about are more to be desired than the things of God. And it is to these lost people that Jesus sends the man who's best equipped to speak the message to them. In verse 18, this man who's been possessed, he begs Jesus. He begs to be able to go with Jesus. He wants to be one of the disciples. That's what the phrase means there, so that he might be with him. He wants to be one of the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus says no to this man's good desire. And he says no for the sake of something more important. Verse 19, he says to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In essence, Jesus is saying, what I have done for you, I have done for them as well. Go, witness, declare the mercies of God. They need this message and you have been equipped to give it. And verse 20 tells us that he was faithful to this calling. He went to all the region. These are all Gentile cities. And he proclaims how much Jesus has done for them, and they marvel. Two conclusions, then, that we draw from the story. If Jesus has done this really great thing for us, we should desire to share this with others. It should be part and parcel of our lives as Christians to bear witness to the gospel. Sweetly, winsomely, but with conviction. But secondly, what this story tells us, no one is beyond the ability of Christ to save. And so we shouldn't despair of those we think are hopelessly lost. 
We must pray and keep praying. We must share and witness and keep sharing in any and all the opportunities that God would give us on behalf of those that we love to make the message known. No one is beyond the power of God to save. I've been encouraged not only by the story of Manasseh, but by the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, this great king of all kings, one of the greatest kings ever to live on the face of the earth, has this, this, this dream. It's a dream of a great tree that gets chopped down, and he asks Daniel to interpret the dream for him. And Daniel says, this, this tree is all about you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You are the great king of all kings. But here's what's going to happen to you. It's been decreed that you shall be removed from your kingship. You shall be given the mind of an animal for seven times seven, for seven years, until you are humbled, until you are humbled and you will recognize the God of heaven. And at the end of those days, listen to Nebuchadnezzar's story. Because Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's words. It's Nebuchadnezzar telling us, what did God do to me and why did God do this? And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The greatest statement of God's sovereignty in all of Scripture is found on the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar in his repentance and recovery and restoration and reconciliation to God. We do not find on the lips of the Apostle Paul, we do not find in the writings of Moses, we don't even find in the lips of Jesus any words that excel the honoring of a sovereign God beyond what Nebuchadnezzar states here. And he goes on to say, At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor all returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was reestablished in my kingdom. Greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. No man is so hopelessly lost that Christ cannot save. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what Jesus has done, what Mark has shown us, to encourage us in our lives as Christians. You are almighty to save. You have the power to deliver us again and again and again. And you have the power to deliver those that we see that appear to us to be beyond hope. We would ask, Lord, that you might give us perseverance in prayer and perseverance in witness toward those who seem to be beyond cure, that we might always know and remember that the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save, that you are the Lord, the God of all flesh, that nothing is too difficult for you. In Jesus' name, amen.